Hello, Smug Film fans. Please visit smugfilm.com slash survey, and fill out, our fan survey, about the show. We want to deliver the best possible show, and so we want to hear, from you. Thank you in advance, and now, on to the episode, you lovely lovely people. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is Jenna Ipcar. Hello. And live via Skype all the way from California, Carl Garcia. Hi, how you doing? Good to have you, man. This is my first time talking to you, actually. Yeah. We've uh, been we've uh, known, known each other on Twitter for some time, I guess. Yep, yep. A uh, longtime listener of the show because I just put it on at work a lot. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, lots of lots of faves and retweets and ats between me and this guy. Yeah, and, this guy uh, loves us on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, his his Twitter, of course, is Fried Pundit. Is there a, is there a meaning to that name? Um, not really. It's something I kind of just slapped together when I was seventeen. I think I needed like a Team Fortress Two username or something, and that yeah, it's just stuck. Do you do you fancy yourself a pundit? Uh, no. Do you fancy yourself fried? <laughs> Yes. Oh, okay. Makes sense. And uh, you got a lot of tweets, buddy. You got 41.7 thousand. Yeah, that's thousand whatever. (laughs) Jesus, really? Yeah. Mr. Tweet Man. Have you been along that many, alive? (laughs) Have you been alive that many days? I don't know. It's one of those things that like your friends pushed you into it like almost 10 years ago and you're like, I'm never going to use this Twitter thing. (laughs) And then just got sucked in. Now he only exists on Twitter. Well, he's been doing some awesome Twitter stuff lately. You've been you've been watching Star Trek the original series for the first time, right? Yeah. As far as Star Trek goes, I've only seen Wrath of Khan before, which is weird considering that I've like have seen nearly all all of Doctor Who and just other you know outer limits, all sorts of other sci-fi things, and yet I just never touched Star Trek because I Jeez. hated it as a kid. Jeez. So. Yeah, yeah, I was I was always repelled by Star Trek. I haven't I haven't gone through yet, but I'm feeling the pull. And part of that is coming from just seeing the the funny pictures you're posting and the yeah. captions and all and that. It's awesome too. I it just really I love seems the production like it. values. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, guys, you're killing me here. But was were you turned off by Next Generation? See, that's the thing. I lumped uh, it yes. all together when I was a kid. Oh, my really? mom took me to see Insurrection when I was like eight, and I was so bored. I just decided that all Star Trek was terrible, and I never <laughs> wanted to watch it. That's exactly what happened to me. My dad took me into to, to Insurrection and. It just repelled yeah. me. Oh, wow. There's a whole generation of you guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It was like, a, you know, it was like getting scared straight away from Star Trek. <laughs> it was like they just drag into insurrection. They're like, this is what this is. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to like this if you start watching Star Trek. It's like, no, I want to watch Star Wars. Yeah, I remember just being never knowing a movie could bore me so badly and then you know at the end data is like in a haystack or something and i'm as an eight-year-old i'm like man that's stupid luckily uh, i have little to no recollection of that film you know it's, it's gone in the memory bank so yeah. they're just you know buried with uh probably like I, horrific things that happened to me as a child that i'll never <laughs> know jesus yeah yeah. I remember the poster for that Gus Van Sant Psycho remake in the lobby of the theater better than the movie. <laughs> mm. So if you like Star Trek, if you don't like Star Trek, these are tweets you got to enjoy. You got to start following this guy. If you haven't already, I'm enjoying them thoroughly. Jenna, you got to get on this. You, All of you uh, who is, are listening even, not just 
Cody and, and Carl, but you guys all have to watch the original series. It is genuinely amazing. That's what I'm seeing. It's I mean, genuinely these screenshots amazing. are great. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's really well written. The characters are really, you get really genuinely into them. And then it's also, it has this great set design and it's a little bit funny. <laughs> now, let me ask you something, Carl. Are you a Trekkie now? Would you consider yourself that? Uh, I don't think I'd call myself that until I kind of mainline everything, oh, but I'm be. pretty getting deep into it now. All right. Yeah. You starting to look for like some like red, blue or yellow, like sweaters or whatever. What's <laughs> oh, the, man, what's that, that thing? It's like a turtleneck kind of thing where it's got the it's pin like a on it. Yeah. It's a good look. It is. It's coming back in style. It's very, uh, you know, it's got that sixties like mod coolness yeah. to it slightly yeah i'm all about that form-fitting primary color clothing <laughs> yeah life you know and uh carl recently has has undergone a new project which uh we are happy to have him a part of and and well make yeah. it a part of uh smug film posts and whatnot we excited. yeah it's uh it's why well am i saying that or should i just say why I think like, that's it. <laughs> should I put the right emphasis? Yeah. Just, uh, I think the emphasis needs to be, uh, what is the word? Uh, I'll, I'll do another take of it then. <laughs> Why? A question for bad movies. <laughs> yeah. That's his, his new video series, and uh, we've been posting them on Smug Film, and you're doing them every other month, right? Yeah. Um, and then the alternating months is going to be another series called Damn Good Picture, which is about good movies. How should I say that one? Uh, like a 30s newsreel guy. Damn good picture. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be alternating those. You'll see them on the site, but also just, you know, follow them on Twitter and you'll see them right away. And okay. uh, why a question for bad movies. His first one is about fucking Labor Day. <laughs> Oof. And can we just say, like, this is, it's a really funny video. Yeah, this is, uh, oh, thank you. you know, he's talking over it. He's playing clips. He, your goal, well edited. Se- yeah, your goal seems to be, you know, you want to figure out, it, it's not just to make fun of a bad movie. It's also to figure out like, A, what went wrong, B, what was intended, yeah. what's going on here? Uh, yeah, I think the, the whole, um, like the whole impetus of this is like, I, I see a lot of video essays and it's kind of just somebody recording a pre-written essay and then there's video clips running underneath it. It's, it's like two separate worlds. And I yeah. think it's much stronger if you have a dialogue going on with the film. And especially like when you're looking at like a bad movie, I kind of want to like allow the movie to mount its own defense in a way. Like the ideal version is that you can kind of like say something you hated about the movie and then let a clip from the movie kind of defend itself, even though the, it's usually poorly because the movie sucks. Yeah. I mean, Labor Day yeah. is a that, <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah. And you should totally watch it, listeners. Please go on smugfilm.com and watch it. It's what, like six minutes long, 16 minutes long. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's really good. Well, it's the kind of movie that like a lot of people just wouldn't see. And then they would just assume like, all right, well, I guess if I probably, if I did watch it, wouldn't be that bad. It's like one of those movies where it just doesn't, it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not glaringly (laughs) bad. It's got an all right cast all right director and but it just does not come together that one yeah no it's it's sort of the ground of bad movies that i'm really fascinated by that they just kind of you know the the incompetence isn't obvious you know you have to kind of like pick it apart and be like what what is going on with this thing 
Yeah, it's like you sense something's off as you're watching it and you got to really just sort of like inspect. So so why did you choose this one first? There's there's a lot of bad movies I stumbled across that kind of just hold my attention. And this one I can't shake. Like I, I think it was kind of a self exorcism just to get it out of my brain by making this um, because I just couldn't stop thinking about it for like a good year and a half after I saw it. It's just so, you know, just trying to get to the bottom of like what um, was going on with it. And like once you put it in an editing bay and like go through it shot by shot and cut it up into pieces, you know, just kind of disassembling the engine, you start to see how it all works Mm. and what they were shooting for. So, you know, it's it's one of those movies, too, where it's it's not going to get like a cult following like the room. Because yeah. I feel like there's a certain thing where like the cast kind of will prevent that and the director kind of mm-hmm. prevents that because like it it just won't be like a troll two type thing because there's no unknown quality to it. Yeah, there isn't that. Yeah, like you said, an unknown quality. It isn't a uh, there isn't anything that's it's just so bad in such a bizarre way that it's its own unique product. Like it it doesn't enter uh, parts of it are kind of abstract, but it doesn't fully enter the level of abstraction that like Birdemic or The Room does. Mm. Um which, again, that's kind of that odd middle ground I want to poke around in because I think there's a lot that you can dig out of and learn just from looking at these kind of weird, bad movies that are kind of trying to be serious dramas. I don't know what I'm saying. What it, <laughs> well, Because it, it, yeah. it's like competently shot, too. Like yeah. it's uh, yeah, that's what I was So it kind of like hides in plain sight mm-hmm. where I feel like audiences can be tricked by that in, in certain instances where like, because the production values are par with everything else of that type. Yeah. And the acting and yeah. the sound. There's nothing but, yeah. bad except the plot. <laughs> right. The plot and maybe the editing and this, mm. that, and the other where it just, it just does not work. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie, so I think we should, you know, like this is the one where it's like the guy escapes prison and then holds Kate Winslet and her son hostage. Right. You want to, yeah. you want to like sum it up? Yeah. There's a. It's Kate Winslet is a single mom and she's got a kid um, and their husband abandoned them and she's got depression issues and stuff. And then uh, one fateful Labor Day weekend, Josh Brolin shows up and is an escaped convict. And, you know, he teaches them how to bake pies and uh, teaches the kid all these father skills. And then he gets arrested. And then uh, Kate Winslet waits for him to get out of jail 25 years so they can hook up again. And the kid has like depression issues. The kid is more just, I think he's, he's just supposed to be without a father figure and then he finds one and it's so beautiful, but like it, you know, the whole (laughs) presentation of the father figure stuff is just unnervingly cliche and kind of creepy. I was writing down some of the themes that you highlight in your video and these were the ones that really made me laugh was how the kid keeps trying, there's like a weird incestuous like mm-hmm. a theme running through this where like, you know, the, you like to point out how the kid keeps trying not to masturbate when like his, when he thinks of his mom, yeah. but it's like really subtle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or it's overt, but it's not like, it's not like pointing, like, you know, there's no like creepy music playing, you know, yeah. it's like, it's like seen as like normal. And also it's not like a Todd Solon's movie or anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's again, it's a lot of it is like presentation as opposed to like the content. Um, Do you think it's a thing of them being tone deaf to that aspect as they're editing it or like nobody speaking yeah. up? And it's a strange thing. It's a strange realm to kind of explore too, if you're not going to be campy about it. Um, just like burgeoning sexuality being confused or something. Yeah. Or it needs to, yeah. it needs to be like more head on maybe even like mm-hmm. it needs to be, that's what the movie's about. 
Yeah. Yeah. Is there um, any other parallel in that movie that even has to do with the coming of age, really? Or is that the theme? Because it also seemed I, like maybe the, it, they just didn't know what the, the theme of the film was. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it still perplexes me. Yeah. It's one of those. I mean, you n- you'll never get to the bottom of this movie. Yeah. You know, it's uh yeah, the way that you presented it, it seems that like one theme is like this kid doesn't have a father. Right. The other theme mm-hmm. is like he's coming of age and dealing with his sexuality. And then there's like the the kidnapping, like, you know, will he won't like, he get caught by the cops? Yeah. And, and it's then, like trying to get some kind of vaguely kinky Fifty Shades angle. It's like they're trying to kind of grab that demo, but just like a little bit, just like in a safer way. Do you think maybe this was like a kind of glorified, like it's meant to be like the housewife fantasy novel that like the, the strapping man comes and I, so I haven't seen the movie. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, we both just watched your video. Yeah. The way I described it in the video is that like Josh Brolin is patriarchy, Mary Poppins. Like that's, that's his entire (laughs) function in the story. (laughs) Um, I like that. Yeah. I do think that there's definitely a degree of like uh, magical fixing for a real world problem. I feel like I would be um, down with that, but then there's this weird the way, like you know, just the the key, I keep coming back to that kid because the kid seems so out of place, especially because he's narrating the whole thing, yeah. which was one of my other favorite reveals in your videos when you're like, and then he grows up to be Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the Tobey Maguire just the whole time narrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like it's the longest lead up to a Spider Man I've ever seen. That's a that's a good point. Maybe the the kid character is superfluous. Maybe it. It should have just been, you know, essentially a two person movie. It, yeah. But then at the same time, like uh, his coming of age stuff seems really crucial to the film. And, um, you know, that seems to be kind of like the direction is kind of just fascinated with this kid being fascinated with Josh Brolin. You know, it's kind of just really focused on like, look at how much he's learning from this great father figure. Mm. Look at how much how, how well rounded he is now because of this great father figure. So I think the kid is, you know, at least in the filmmakers' eyes, is like a crucial element of the movie. Yeah, it's a it's a strange one. That the other thing that I really liked was how you you keep saying how the movie keeps trying to tell you how good of a guy Josh Brolin is. You're like <laughs> he's a great guy, you know. Meanwhile, he's like also kidnapping this family and like holding yeah. him hostage. But then you you make a point in the video to say like, no, here's the point in which he's like really explains he's a great guy. And then eventually in these flashbacks, you learn that he like killed his wife and child. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) It seems like script problems on a, you know, a simple storytelling level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then essentially I would, I I guess a storytelling problem. I should, I Mm -hmm. should classify it as Uh, it's a, it's a shame, but it's a, it's one of those, you can't look away kind of things. Clearly you can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, like what like what aspects of it could you not stop thinking about? All of that? <laughs> the sexual, yeah, the sexual aspects are just completely perplexing. And like, you know, you kind of have to remember that people sat and uh, thought this stuff out. And, you know, any shot that you're looking at takes a couple hours to do on set. You know, you had a couple hours of being like, yes, this is exactly what I want in yeah. this movie. Apparently, I mean, I'm looking at the IMDb right now. It's based on a novel. Yeah, and, I have not really looked into the novel. I'm and, kind of curious to see what the source is. And adapted by Reitman. And, mm-hmm. you know, who who knows how much of this... Like, there's so much stuff that, that you, you can get away with in a novel just yeah. by the form of it and the time you spend on certain things. 
you know, maybe there's uh, there's probably books that just can't ever really be uh, movies. Translated. Like they're yeah. just too much of their uh, of their medium. It might be a case with this. For all we know, the book's great. You know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you know the the incestuous stuff kind of reminded me. I recently watched Charlotte Forever, which is the Serge Gainsbourg movie that came out in '86, where he it's he stars in it, he wrote it, he directed it. Oh, is that is that the one where he's like seducing his daughter or something? Yeah, and then like okay. Charlotte Gainsbourg is like 15 and she's topless for most of the movie, and <laughs> mm-hmm. also like he's you know like he sleeps in bed with her. Like the plot that was another movie. I it also it, and that's what this reminds me of. It kind of haunted me because. And not even for yeah. the incest. <laughs> I've heard the uh, I've heard the creepy theme song because Saint Vincent is like a fan of it, and she put it on her mixtape show once. Oh yeah, the the song. I mean, that's the thing. It's like the the movie's weird. It actually isn't as offensive as I thought it was going to be. Which I don't mm-hmm. know if that's because I'm like you know, <laughs> uh, I'm <laughs> I'm like you know immune to this at this point. But like, um, I mean, the 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 plot of the film is that it's a father and daughter. And, uh, the wife, the, you know, the mother died and he essentially was driving the car when they slammed into an oil tanker, everything exploded. And then he got away with only like a burnt hand, but the Uh wife totally died. So it's like, he's living with his daughter and he was, meanwhile, he's like a failed writer and he keeps like trying to get money out of, now he's a drunk. He's trying to get money out of people so that he can write stuff. And so it's like mostly like. It's the dark, most darkly lit movie I've ever seen in my life. Mm. So dark <laughs> and, and almost like hard. It's like, it's hard to see. And then it's like, you know, him sitting around these dark rooms, like waxing poetically about like, you know, what is life? What is my writing? Trying to like get money out of people. And then Charlotte will come into the room and be like, you know, well, you killed my mother. And then everyone starts crying and he's like, I didn't kill your mother. And then the music starts playing and there's only like two songs and one of them is that like, Charlotte, Charlotte forever. And then like this like <laughs> chorus, like singing in the back, Charlotte forever. And then like the other song is this very 80s, like smooth jazz, like sex time music. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and that will just happen. It like, it goes from like people weeping to then like Charlotte has like, she'll bring over some other friend who I think were older, you know, than she, they're meant to be the same age, but they're, I think they're older. Cause they get like fully naked. Right. <laughs> and like, then there'll be this like scene where like, she's dancing with her ass out and with this like sexy jazz music. And then on top of that, the editing is super bizarre. They keep cutting back to that one scene of this, like Ferrari crashing into like an oil tanker, which they clearly are milking because they paid <laughs> so much money. I'm positive to, to shoot it right that it's was like probably every the, most of the production value <laughs> yeah 100 yeah. percent. and then like you know so then there'll be like the crazy music beats then he he'll he vomits on screen he appease like, on screen and then like, here's a scene where he's weeping and all this snot comes out of his nose and it's real <laughs> like all of it's real and then it'll be this like him lounging with like charlotte in their bed and then like and he's not ever touching her really it's just kind of it's like the type of thing where it's like do daughters hang out topless with their fathers? No, <laughs> but there's never a scene where, and there's sort of this implied, like he sort of implies like once I touched her breast to like some friend of his and he's like, you're going to ruin that girl. <laughs> but like, that's about it. And then like they dance, like there'll be scenes where they're crying and then like that sexy music comes on and they start just dancing. Like, and it they're, then they're both cracking up and it's so bizarre. And I, and like my thought watching this movie was like, 
how did, especially when the credits start rolling, I was like, I didn't realize that many people worked on this. Like I really <laughs> thought it was going to be like three people and they were all just Serge Gainsbourg. Right. But it was an entire, This it takes place in a house. And then the, the credits shows this sort of pulling out on a crane and the whole house is a set. And it shows you the whole set. And, oh, you're, Jesus. and you're just amazed that they even built a set. <laughs> you're like, how did you even build this? So I had the same reaction. I was like, why? I was like, why did this movie get made? It's so bizarre. Everyone, of course, is going to get the soundbite of, oh, it's, a, you know, it's incestuous, even though it kind of mm -hmm. isn't. But it's clearly flirting with that idea of it being like, you know, edgy. Yeah. But the sort of only conclusion that I could come to after th thinking about it was that I think it's like more of like a hate letter to himself. And and I like see I was I was about to comment like cuz you you saying there's all those shots of himself being very gross and having tons of snot like I yeah. can't think of another actor putting themselves in having a huge snotty face like there's definitely something in there about him being super gross. Yeah, it just it yeah. seemed like, you know, this sort of hate letter to himself because I think also he he did in in life start to become an alcoholic and and it mm -hmm. you know sort of killed him in the end and and it, it just seemed like this weird, it was like a way to just present himself to the world to, to number one, make controversy clearly by, by casting his daughter and casting himself and, and yeah. everyone's names being, his name was like Stan and her name's Charlotte, <laughs> you know, it was like this really silly, but like, I don't know, like I couldn't, it, it wasn't a great movie, but it just like, it was really weird, but like it just, and you know, borderline, well, not even borderline, pretty much not okay. Uh, with the nudity, but like, uh, you know, I don't know. Like it was weird that I, I felt like I did actually get at least like some insight afterward. Not that I'd ever want to see it again. Do you feel like you maybe like, did you learn anything yeah, from the, from I, labor day? That's what I love about kind of picking apart these, these weird, bad movies that fascinates me because you can learn so much. Like I strongly believe that like you can learn as much, if not more, from like mediocre movies and bad movies as you can from good movies. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, especially that mediocre ground, I think. For me, creatively, the mediocre movies tend to just kind of be a hotbed for my own ideas. It's like, oh, here's a really good idea that they did shittily. I am stealing it and <laughs> doing my own version. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that was a lot of the appeal for, uh, you know, Grindhouse Cinema for Tarantino and Rodriguez mm -hmm. and stuff is that they would find these like little great ideas that maybe would be like seconds long, maybe just like a tiny music interlude, you know, in, in some deep cut Argento or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, that would be enough where they're like, well, that was, that was really fucking good. And that, that needs to be in something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. uh, there, there are a lot of bad movies that I, I really do enjoy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm prepping my own video essay series which will oh, cool. come out soon, eventually. I don't know when, but uh, one of the ones I'm going to be talking about is uh, Batman and Robin, which is the Joel yeah. Schumacher one. That's the one that nobody likes. That's the <laughs> that's the Batman where it's it's basically just me and maybe some guy who doesn't speak English in some <laughs> other country who who adore it. Like I think that's the fan base. It's me and some guy who doesn't speak English that I've never met. We're we're the people that that love Batman and Robin. And I, I do. I love that movie. And what bugs me about that film is that I don't think people are really asking why enough. I don't think yeah. people are opening themselves up to it enough to really let it in and take it for what it is. You know, it, you go on on YouTube and there's like Cinema Sins does this and tons of other people do this where they 
they, they'll nitpick everything that's wrong about something. Mm-hmm. And like nine times out of 10, those are stylistic choices. And yeah, it's no, like, oh man, I gotta. <laughs> it's like, all anytime right. Anytime Cinema Sins comes up, I bring this up because the, it, like, it's just a stupid little detail in one of their videos. But to me, it just like defines everything I hate about them. Um, in their Jurassic Park video, they've got a bit where, you know, everyone's riding in the helicopter to the island. And they point out that uh, John Hammond is sitting on one side of the helicopter. And then when the helicopter lands, he gets out on the other side, you know, the, the side he wasn't sitting on, mm-hmm. which, again, is just kind of like a weird technical nitpick, whatever. But what they're completely, completely missing is that that is obviously done on purpose because of the way you know, the helicopter is moving from left to right as it gets to the island, left to right as it lands. And then when Hammond comes out of the helicopter, you know, he walks left to right kind of towards the camera. And if they had done that with correct continuity, he would have gotten out on the run. He would have been going the wrong direction. It would have just completely, you know, messed up the visual flow. And it was just been like this tiny little hiccup that would have thrown off the audience. And like that right. would have been actual cinema sin. That would have been Not, glaring. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the, the fact that they just completely missed this just shows like that. They have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. That's legit. I remember I looked up, they did, they did a video once, which was like, uh, it was like a cinema sins about cinema sins. It was like them ripping themselves apart. But the, and I was hoping for them to like call themselves out and be like, all right, yeah, you know, we're kind of nitpicking and done with shit. But a lot of this stuff, it was like very passive aggressive. (laughs) It was like, it was, you know, they were kind of copping to it, but they were kind of also making fun of complaints that people have against them. And it just, it came off as very defensive and, and dishonest yeah, even. I want to touch that. That's kind of a lot of why I started doing this. Cause it just seems like since Ebert died, bad movie discussion has kind of just moved into that cinema sins realm. And then yeah. like angry movie nerd realm. And luckily my Chicago nasal nerd voice doesn't really lend itself to convincing rage. So I kind <laughs> of avoid it. I don't like, <laughs> yell in, in my videos cause it just sounds bad. And yeah, Ebert, when Ebert, like ripped apart a movie, you could always tell that he came at it fairly and got his, got his hands just like elbow deep in the shit and came out, you know, there's a very, um, and he, he isn't like pure about it either. Like he's not above like throwing barbs at movies, which I think is part of the fun is being a bit of a hypocrite. Um, he had a very, uh, Dumbledorean quality, like just kind of that cheeky monk who was a bit of a rule breaker, but like, Everyone let it slide because they knew he was legit, kind of thing. Mm. That's um, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think you hit on something great there, which is if you don't come at a film fairly in the first place, yeah. what are we doing here? You can't. Yeah, I can't you read can't that. Really, and I think that that's that's kind of why I gave it that title. Why? Because you know the angry movie nerd guy just yells why infinitely and doesn't actually ask the question. Yeah. Know, doesn't actually exam- look for an answer to it. A good example of what I'm talking about with Ebert, one of my favorite reviews uh, he did was like a mid 2000, like super shitty thriller murder mystery thing. Um, I can't remember the name of it because it's so generic, but (laughs) basically it was like half the movie was told in flashbacks. And then you find out at the end of the movie that all the flashbacks were somebody's false memory and the movie's been lying to you half the time for no good reason. Oh, man. Uh, I remember that spat of those kinds of movies. He was talking about the whole thing took place on an island off of like Cape Cod or something in like an inn. And he's describing this building and he's like, it's a three story inn. There's like clapboards. It's like, you know, late 19th century, very old. And this woman dies and the family stands to inherit it. And an accountant comes 
and appraises this place and says it's worth, oh, about (laughs) $400,000. And then at this point, somebody in the audience shouted, I'll buy it. (laughs) And then he says, now, reader, it is shamefully rude for a critic to shout during a press screening. And I must admit that I was the one who shouted. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like he's, you know, not above being a bit of a rule breaker just for... Things that have kind of earned their way into being made fun of, I suppose. Yeah, that's a. Um, like I mean, after, that's a perfect. You've weighed it, you know. That's a perfect quip at a perfect time. Yeah. It's like you can't you can't not say that if that pops into <laughs> your mind right as that happens. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've talked before on here about uh, you know the red letter media guys and the the Phantom Menace thing is. Mm-hmm is a real sticking point for me. I, I like the prequels better than most people. There, there are things mm-hmm. in them that I, I enjoy that makes it so that I can watch them and not entirely cringe the entire way. There's like enough stuff I can get on board with. I fully mm-hmm. understand why some people can, can like barely watch them. Yeah. But some of the nitpicky stuff with like Phantom Menace, like I remember he, he does that thing. I brought this up before on podcast, but uh, I'll bring it up again, which is, in that Phantom Menace video, there's a portion where he's interviewing people and the the whole idea of it is that he's asking them to describe the characters from the original trilogy. So like, what's Han Solo like? What's Leia like? What's Luke like? Oh, yeah. He's, he's like, what's like the, you know, just a character sketch of what they're like. And people will like say that. And then he starts asking like, what's uh, Qui-Gon Jinn like? What's, uh, you know, Obi-Wan prequels like? And... It, the whole idea is to point out the fact that they you can't really describe those characters mm-hmm. in in broad uh, adventure strokes, and that yeah. he uses that as ammunition that therefore the movie's bad. And he also says, unless you're like uh, unless you're David Lynch or whoever else, like he gives like one or two examples, you shouldn't be messing around with that. You should stick to like the formula. Of, that's terrible. Which is, yeah. it, I mean, that's just that's that's wrong in and of itself. I mean, yeah, a lot of things, I think it's like the it, it doesn't function well in that particular movie because of a context around it. And people just think that it's automatically a thing that's not going to work in any movie. Yeah, you like can't. The, if you, you disagree know. with the decision, yeah. I mean, I I totally get people who wanted an adventure movie out of the prequels. You know, that's what they expected. Yeah. Uh, but I also fully get why he wanted to shake things up a little bit and try and make a different type of movie. Yeah. And it's like the characters don't necessarily have to be well-defined for the movie to be good or bad. It could be that the characters are completely secondary to something else in the movie. And that's not, yeah, that seems not, it's not hard evidence that the movie's bad. That seems to be the vibe of the prequels is that it's more about uh, a certain palette and Mm -hmm. it's also about a certain climate and a certain time period. And it's, in that way, I feel like he's trying to make a point about myth and uh, the sort of the lies of myth and looking back in the past and like sort of sugarcoating it and coloring it and why mm-hmm. people do that sort of thing. Like you see how the, how the Jedi's have sort of the way that they look back at, you know, those prequel times. And then yeah. we see the prequels and we're like, well, it's, it wasn't really <laughs> like that at all. I think that's a valid uh, choice that he made, whether yeah, he I, executed I it perfectly or not. I don't think he executed it perfectly, but I think that's a why that has to be addressed when you go back to those films that a lot of people are just afraid to because they it, it's so much easier to just be like, oh, Jar Jar's dumb, you know? Well, that's also too, it's like, you know, how how many people have even 
seen the prequel more than once or twice. Yes. So then to be like, you know, well, oh, you know Han Solo, but you don't know this guy. Like, that's like saying like, you know, describe JFK, now describe Van Buren to like, you know, someone on the street. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you know, like. It's totally loaded. Yeah, you know. It's You're so, talking it's about fair. movies people have watched 20, 30 times versus movies Plus, that people have watched like once or twice. Right. And then I've also been told like, this is a very important movie that you need to remember or yes. else you're going to get mm-hmm. bitch slapped by a nerd. <laughs> you know, Whereas like, the other one, they're like, just forget that movie. Yeah, forget <laughs> it existed. You're actively told, just forget, just ignore those. Right. Uh, it's a shame. And uh, to bring it back to Batman and Robin, what I think people don't meet halfway with that movie is that I don't think people... Like people excuse the camp when it comes to the 60s Batman stuff. And then they look at the camp in the 90s Batman Schumacher stuff, which specifically I'm talking about Batman and Robin because Batman forever, he kind of had his foot in both waters. You know, he had his foot in camp a little bit and he had his foot in what the fans kind of wanted and expected. But then Batman and Robin, he just went full out and it was just camp, 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 camp. And the problems people have with it, if you accept the film as camp, those problems kind of disappear and it just becomes a thing of, all right, well, I didn't like it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's as simple as like, all right, it was camp, but it wasn't for me. And that I can totally accept, but people will be like, oh my God, the acting and the lines were so bad. We're so this, we're so that. And it's like, well, if there's like a hundred mistakes like that, they're probably intentional. Right. They're they're probably a, a deliberate choice rather than, like what? What are the odds of of uh, you know you're trying to flip for heads and you get tails like two hundred times in a row? It's like what are the odds of that? It's like obviously there was there was some intentionality to this whole production. Mm-hmm. Camp gets it gets railroaded because it, that's the thing. People look back at Star Trek, they think, oh well, it's old. They were it was silly and old, and you're like, no. No, like it's, it's sense all, of humor is it knows exactly what its budget level is exactly and it works it to the best possible degree just in the way it's designed and like the whole the whole humor of that show i think is genius like it they just ah yeah it's so they true exactly they, what they're doing exactly they know what they're doing they know their limitations and nobody in the 60s thought like whoa look at that awesome special effect some special effects yes but for the most part you know like the set is cardboard people knew that you know it wasn't about the set it was about the characters about the writing it was about the plot you know, so that stuff, you know, like, and they, and they use the set to the best of their ability. And then the other thing about camp is I feel like the only time that you can sort of, that people take it seriously now is if it's like about a romantic comedy or something. So like mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge, everyone loved, but Moulin Rouge is so campy and ridiculous and over the top. And then like, you know, the, the people who say, Oh, I don't like it. It's usually like guys who are afraid of like, you know, musicals or something, even though all the music is new music. You know, which is yeah. something it's like everyone can listen to this song like on their you know headphones, but not in a film when it's being sung by someone. I don't get it. But anyhow, it is like it, it is weird that people will sit there and, and think of it as a mistake or they think that like, oh, this happened in the past. No one realized it. Like, no, it's all a very specific, like on purpose choice. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Irony wasn't invented in the last couple of years. Right. And, uh, self-awareness wasn't invented in the last couple of years. <laughs> right. It's like that. People always talk about teenagers thinking they invented everything. They invented cool. They invented like, you know, rebellion. But no, people have been rebelling and, and doing things that are a little off kilter for ages. Yeah. I mean, especially like, you know, go back to the 20s, go back to all, you know, go to precode.com or good yeah, friend Danny Reed. Yeah. Check out Danny Reed. And pre-code. see some shit you still can't see on screen today. Yeah. And people have these conceptions of, of, of old movies where like everyone was very uptight and it's like, nah, check out some of that precode shit. It, I just watched it wasn't the, like uh, that. 
Noel Coward written David Lean movie last night where Rex Harrison fucks a ghost. Like, oh, which, which one? <laughs> Life Spirit. Yes, yeah. I love that yeah. movie. That's a that's the one with um, Margaret Rutherford. Yeah, as this uh, medium. Oh, she, she was awesome. She fucking steals the entire film. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, you got to uh, and you're like, come back. And yeah, then she does come back. <laughs> you got to. Have you seen the Miss Marple stuff with her yet? Now, no, I didn't know she did Miss Marple. Yeah, she did four Miss Marple films. Oh, I'll watch those. The first one yeah. is uh, okay. The second one is fucking amazing, and then the third or fourth are kind of like crappy. Like because one of them it wasn't even based on an Agatha Christie. They were just kind of oh, like winging that's it. Fuck up. It had like a very like remember when there was the writer's strike and like clearly nobody was writing stuff and like mm-hmm. everything had like that like oh fuck scrambled together quality yeah the one that she that isn't from an agatha christie source really feels like that mm-hmm. <laughs> but um the best miss marple is murder at the gallop that's the one where cool. she's totally like in her element gets the character it's just it's like a flawless version of miss marple yeah, no, she she had a certain um, there's like a certain brand of dottiness to her performance, that I think, was like more on point than any other actor I've seen do. Like she definitely gets that like kooky old lady vibe really well. Yeah, she's very, very captivating. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be back with more Carl Garcia. Yeah. So uh, stick around. See you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, if you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For just $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or smugfilm.com or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Whether you want us to plug your website, your movie, your small business, your Twitter handle, whatever it is, we'll plug it. For $10 a month, you get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on every single episode of the show. That's four episodes a month. It's an incredible deal. So once again, that URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head on over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now, on to the show. Hello. I am the new Smug Film voicemail plug lady. I'm sexier, better, and lovelier in every way. Anyway, please leave a question or a comment for the Smug Film podcast at 718-395-9711 and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening to my beautiful voice. And now, back to the show. Hello, I am the Hunky Smug Film Sponsor Plug Man. I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the Smug Film Podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter, he's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby, slow, on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons, 
Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here as Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com slash smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. And we are back. All right, we got a couple of voicemails for you. So let's uh, let's play those. This is Dan Salisbury. Still working on some bebop for you, Jenna. This is what I've come up with. It's not bebop, but this is Jazz for Jenna, number two. All right, another jazz for Jenna. Way to tease me with that's this is I'm writing some bebop, but this isn't it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I'm waiting for that bebop. But that that sounded like a thank you, Dan. I loved it. It sounded like uh, it sounded like it reminded me of like Mr. Rogers neighborhood. A little bit. It had that like uh, peaceful. Uh, yeah. Taking off your shoes, putting on house shoes. I always loved that that he he had the house shoes and they looked pretty similar to his outdoor shoes. I went, I always wondered if he ever got them mixed up because they looked kind of similar. Yeah. You think he ever like went out to like get the mail and forgot the the shoes? You know. That would be a great episode is like he fucks up his routine and then like everything else in the day just totally fucks up. Um, But yeah, he and also like uh, he would have like his his indoor sweater and his outdoor like jacket and uh, he had like his indoor zip up. He had this whole thing. I was I was really obsessed with that as a kid more than any other aspect of that show was just like (laughs) trying to figure out what his uh, clothing situation was. He always had nicely colored cardigans. Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved Mr. Rogers. I actually saw, I love how this is becoming <laughs> Mr. Rogers discussion, <laughs> but I actually saw a, um, I saw a documentary actually, uh, I guess like a year ago, it was called Speedy Delivery, which is about, uh, the, the guy, Mr. McFeely, who is like the mailman on that show. Yeah. He's like kind of keeping the legacy alive. Like he goes to like events and like, you know, signs autographs for kids to like wow. people that are like, you know, 40 years old. Like it's just people. <laughs> of spanning the entire gamut of ages and uh he's like 77 and he just he does that he just goes all over the, the country doing that and keeping mr rogers alive he's like the ambassador of mr rogers now and he's cute little it was one of those documentaries where it's like it's obviously like one of his cousins like edited it or something like it has that like iMovie quality yeah but it's like it doesn't matter it's just it has so much love in it and it's just a simple like g-rated documentary <laughs> what if it wasn't g-rated <laughs> no but you know what i mean like those kind of documentaries where right. it's like there's nothing objectionable is it about like an this. hour long yeah exactly yeah. it's like 60 70 minutes it, you know, it. most people would be like, oh, I'm not giving money to that. There's no conflict. There's no whatever. It's just a guy going around. But it, it you know, it works. And I'm glad those those kind of documentaries exist. So uh, thank you, Dan Salisbury, for jogging my memory about talking about that film. Because I've, I've always meant to bring that one up. But I just, I, it's one of those ones where it's so peaceful. It's so simple that you don't think to like necessarily bring it up. It's like, where would I bring that one up? But uh the, the the jazz jogged my memory. It your, was it was jazz music. for Jenna, but it was kind of <laughs> jazz for Cody. In a, 
<laughs> in a small, in some small way, Aww. it was jazz for Cody. We've all learned something. <laughs> and today. I, uh, I think I've you never for that. like come across anyone being serenaded in the modern day. This is a first for me. <laughs> I know it kind of reminds me of like the like the Tom and Jerry thing, where like you know, <laughs> yeah. Tom Tom would sometimes be out in like the yard where like the girl cat was like up in the window, and he'd be serenading her. Yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> nice. how I picture Dan Salisbury sure. in my mind. As I picture Tom from Tom and Jerry. It reminded me actually of a guy that's in my subway station like once a week that just plays like Spanish guitar. It's really nice, but it's like, <laughs> you remind me of that homeless guy in the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. because of the lo-fi like, you know, phone quality, it does have a, a bit of a homeless vibe to it, you know? <laughs> it, I'm pretty sure Dan has a home. I'm sure he does, <laughs> but it, it doesn't have... It's got like that rawness to it. It's not like polished jazz it feels like uh, we're listening to an old like uh, phonograph or something. Oh yeah, no, it has that. Yeah, it has a weight to it. So yeah, and please, you don't have to be uh, Dan to uh, send Jenna jazz. <laughs> I want to stress that you know hashtag jazz for Jenna. You know, send her some jazz. Play it. We'll play or it on the jizz. show or some jizz. Meaning in the Star Trek, Star Wars, Star Wars. Sense. Let's specify. Star Wars Only sense. Only in the Star Wars sense. <laughs> Look it up if you don't know what it means. Just Google jizz. <laughs> Google Star Wars jizz. Google image search. Yeah. <laughs> There's a distinct jizz that's Star Wars related, unrelated to the jizz that we know and love in other areas of our life. <laughs> I thought that was the jizz we knew and love. Well, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> we're, we're looking for... Uh, a specific kind of jizz to play on the podcast. The auditory the wailing jizz. on the jizz horn type. That's right. <laughs> wailing on the jizz horn. Wailing That's on what the they jizz do. horn. They wail on the jizz horn. A Carl Garcia yeah. story. Yeah, that sounds no, like one of those uh, Kindle eroticas on Amazon. <laughs> wailing on the jizz horn. <laughs> Part five. By Carl Garcia. My Ashley Madison username. <laughs> <laughs> That's your hobbies on Ashley Madison. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got another voicemail here. Hey, guys. It's uh, Andy Anderson here. I wanted to uh, share with you a really great film-going experience I had this past weekend. I went and saw a showing of Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller in 35mm at the uh, Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles. So I, I like love Robert Altman. I haven't seen like a lot of his films, but the ones I've seen I've loved for years, like Nash and The Long Goodbye are two of my absolute favorite movies of all time. I also really like Gosford Park and The Player, and uh, I love the Popeye movie with Robin Williams. It's like really cool. Anyway, so McCabe and Mrs. Miller was like one of those movies that I've been like wanting to see for years and hadn't got around to it. And it was like looming over me. And yeah, then I saw they were having a 35 millimeter showing. So I went and I'm so happy that I waited to see it unintentionally until I could see it in 35 millimeter. It, it was just so cool. And it, and it was such a great film. Like I loved it. Like it, it might be my new favorite Altman film. And it was really cool to see it in 35 millimeter because the cinematographer, uh, Vilmos Siegmund, he pre-fogged the film. It's a technique that he used a lot to give it that like 70s dreamy look. And that really came through in the print of the film that I ended up seeing. 
have to watch it, a digital version of it soon, like DVD or Blu-ray, just to compare, because I imagine that pre-fog effect would be somewhat lost in, a, in any digital remaster of the film. Anyway, yeah, I was just wondering if any of you guys had any experiences like that where you uh, didn't see a film until seeing it under extraordinary or, like, optimal viewing circumstances and that made you glad that you had waited to see it until then or affected your appreciation of the film like you appreciated it more because of seeing it in like optimal viewing circumstances anyway that's it for me thanks bye okay yeah um so i was actually at that exact same screening really exact same room with you yeah that's crazy what are the odds of this totally oh man yeah, you lucky son of a bitch. Uh, you made the right call waiting to see that in 35 because it only exists as a really crappy DVD right now. Mm. Um, there's rumors Criterion's going to do a Blu-ray later this year. But I don't know how confirmed those are. But yeah, the DVD sucks. And as you're talking about with that pre-fog effect, you know, it was kind of amazing seeing it in 35 and just getting that whole, drill. you know, it's a very brown movie. And um, on the DVD, it looked kind of muddy. Yeah, brown gets muddy the, fast on a yeah. DVD. Uh, and this print of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it was much more earthy and oh, looked beautiful. Mm. You know, I mean, it was kind of a movie. You see the crappy DVD and you know it's a beautiful movie, but you just can't see it. And then see it in 35. Yeah, same kind of experience. I also love Robert Altman. Um, I'm actually going to have a couple video essays sometime in the future. I'm going to do a why a question for bad movies about quintet, which I despise. I thought and it was going to be about Mr. T and the women. I like Mr. T and the you women. Like the, <laughs> I remember um, distinctly my parents coming home from seeing that I was in Cape Cod at my grandparents' house and they went out and saw a movie together. And then they came home and essentially my grandparents were babysitting me and my sister for that night. They came home with so much hate for Mr. T and the women, <laughs> like at, to the point where they were describing fairly inappropriate aspects of it to like to yeah, me and my Farrah sister Fawcett just tears her clothes off and runs around the mall in it. yeah she was she was explaining that my mom was explaining that and like how terrible it was and it was just so bad that she couldn't stop talking about how bad it was <laughs> but uh I've, I've never actually seen it personally but it's it's burned into my mind as a bad movie because of that yeah and then the the other essay i want to do which is a big one is uh allman's 80s output which the narrative goes that like he kind of couldn't get anything made and was just making like really bad little movies that nobody saw, which is not the case. They're really interesting movies. A lot of them are theatrical adaptations, which are really fascinating to watch how he like does a play as a film in his style. And it's kind of just an overlooked era of his work. Mm. And what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. He, uh, Andy was asking about similar experiences i had one in uh late december also at the egyptian i saw lawrence of arabia which i'd seen oh god times. oh my god i saw it in 70 i missed millimeter. it i missed i showed it. up 90 minutes early and got a perfect seat and <laughs> it was a religious experience did um, you get up to pee at all no nice you yeah. can't you can't the whole thing and it was really fascinating because get, having it so big in your face you kind of end up noticing all the minutiae and like all the little details that kind of build up to the bigger things in that movie. Oh, I'm sure. And like in my own writing, it was fun to discover just how much shit I stole from Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. Like I've done that ending like three times. <laughs> I was going to say, too, about 70 millimeter. That's uh, that's one of the couple times where se seeing something in the correct format really changes it. it. Like 
opens up the whole damn movie and Absolutely. it's so engaging and so interesting and visually interesting. One of the, the 70 millimeter um, experiences that I had that I really loved was uh, seeing this. It's a Ukrainian movie called the white bird marked with black or like the white crane with a black spot. And it's a uh, Yuri uh, Ilyenko who's a well-known uh, Ukrainian uh, figure director. skater <laughs> figure skater. And it, it's it a, sounds like one of them figure skater names, right? Just because he's Ukrainian? No, but come on. I think there's a guy is uh, Ilyenko or something like that. Plashenko. Plashenko. And then there's the Great Malenko, which is the <laughs> insane clown posse thing, right? Oh, that I don't know. You know I know. No, I knew my Russian figure skater, but... <laughs> see, now I'm embarrassed about my juggalo knowledge. But uh, this movie, it's about like, you know, this, this family living in the Ukraine. It's a really hard movie to find, apparently. And of course I got to see it in the original, original print. And that was so thrilling. And it was like, it, it's a type of movie that I don't know that if I, I haven't seen it since. And I don't know that I want to, because I don't think it would be nearly as effective. There was so much happening on, on that screen in so many parts. And there's this great scene where he's like kind of on a raft pulling logs down this river. And it's a really like intense, like rapid river. And, uh, the, the shot is like this camera tipping over on this, like, you know, just raft. It's really just like bits of, of like, you know, logs tied together mm. and God knows how many cameras they lost doing this. I have no idea. Or if they like just really did it so well that it looks so, you know, intense. Yeah, Maybe but, they got just crazy lucky with it, but I just can't Im imagine. I mean, this was shot, it was shot like 71 in russia you know like so yeah i'm like i think they, they might have just done it but like uh it, it's a great movie if you can find it you know especially with subtitles but you know to see it like that was it was just fascinating it was so good oh i bet i had a screening that i went to a couple years back which is a uh, bam had uh argento's inferno in uh 35 millimeter and that seeing that on film was like a huge experience for me because I think most people probably see Argento stuff on DVD. That seems to be the case because like, especially people of our age group, getting into DVD was also just getting into deep cut stuff. Some stuff that you, you didn't see on tape or whatever else. I feel mm -hmm. like Argento was kind of like a rite of passage, at least for me. And it was like, that was, it was like a very exciting time when DVDs were coming out. It was like, we were at the right age to just start, start, you know, delving into these films and, and amazingly being able to see them in their proper aspect ratio, et cetera. But I'd never seen uh, Inferno and seeing that on the big screen, there's so much stuff that works in that movie that when I then, you know, went and saw it on DVD later on, it, it's not there whatsoever. It's yeah. just, it's nowhere to be found because there's certain sound design aspects. Like there's a, there's a part where early on in the film where she goes underwater and she's like looking for something and the sound changes because of that. And in the theater, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody was fucking riveted. Like it was, it was just this an intense, perfect moment that watching it on DVD in your house, you don't get that claustrophobia with it. It was one of the first times I've seen a, um, you know, maybe I'll count the abyss, but honestly, I've never seen abyss in theaters, but it had that great like claustrophobia uh, to the underwater quality that you actually do feel when you are physically underwater. Like even though it's like it can be like a, a vast space because, you know, you're pushing through something to get to wherever you're going. It, you feel claustrophobic because you feel like everything's touching you. It captured that so beautifully. 
I can relate it to actually that dire, dire docks uh, level in Super Mario 64. Because <laughs> like we are we weren't used to Mario having a um, like a, a gauge for like that he could drown or something. <laughs> and then like when that that game came about, that was a very scary thing for me is to think of like, oh, shit, Mario could fucking like drown and I got to like go back up and get air and go back down. But there's like that part in that level where it's just a giant like fucking chasm and there's like an eel swirling around. That shit scared the shit out of me, that Mario part, because it was so easy to die in that spot. It was so easy to just go down and then not be able to come all the way back up and in time. Like it was just it was the the spatial relationships were so perfect that that gave me that claustrophobic swimming quality that I've only really found elsewhere in uh, Argento's Inferno. And it's it's become my favorite uh, Argento film because of that experience. But yeah, that's a cool one. I'm sure other Argentos, if I were to see them, you know, on the big screen, maybe I would ha- I would connect to them way much more, too. Yeah, I saw a Bird with the Crystal Plumage uh, in film uh, on a, you know, in a movie theater. And, and that actually also had this great, like, visual joke uh, towards the end of it that really stood out to me because I love the framing of it. But basically, like, it's been a couple of years, but, like, it was the main character is being, like, uh, basically hunted down, I think, by this woman. And it's in this art gallery. And he finds himself locked in the gallery. So the whole front of this, it's like a storefront, and it's all glass. But there's this one scene where he gets stuck in there, or or it's like, I, I'm, maybe I'm messing up the sexes, but, like, the main character gets stuck and is trying to get out of this glass and like you, but the way that it's framed, it's the exact frame of the the film. So it looks oh. like they're almost trying to escape the film, ah. you know, because <laughs> this glass, this front, this front of the store is exactly the, you know, the, the sort of rectangular frame and it's really interesting. And then you have this person in the background walking towards them, you know, and they're, they're locked in, they can't get out and it looks so good. And, you know, to, to see it large and then, you know, to, to see it on film, it was like, this is how it's meant to be seen, you know? Yeah, I guess I guess I just got to go to any Argento that's screening in 35 millimeter. I think I just need to do that now. I think I, I'm going to respond to them because he was he was never a guy I had much affinity for. And then I saw that and I was like, all right, I get what he's going for. I get I get him now. Sometimes, too, I think you just need to be in a room, a dark room <laughs> where this is the only thing you can concentrate on. Because yep. Argento, he, you know, he, he does lack, you know, certain writing skills you know and and there are holes to the movie but when you're stuck in a room and you're forced to watch it it is more enjoyable than if you're like kind of half-assing it on a dvd on a couch yeah the stuff that works is more glaringly working and the crowd aspect is always like a real nice boost too like it'll you know really make you more forgiving of lesser movies if the crowd is really into it oh yeah if you get a good crowd i mean like you you could get through like the the worst comedies if the crowd's like way on board with something mm-hmm. like I've had that experience where like I'll, I'll go see something that's just shitty. But if the crowd's really into it, it's like you just you get on their wavelength and you end up being like, yeah, yeah that was no right movie. And then you watch it on DVD like a year later. You're like, holy shit, that movie's <laughs> not funny at all. <laughs> but I want to bring it back to uh, to uh, bad movies and giving them a fair shake because I wanted to ask you, what are some bad movies that, that you like that? Uh, um. I kind of tried to rack my brain. I know I've got some and I just can't think of them, but there's that ideal where the movie really kind of functions in a way that maybe the filmmakers didn't intend it. I don't mm-hmm. know if that ideal actually exists. You know, the accidentally good movie 
But I kind of just landed on a couple of those that I think fall into that more abstract category where they're just so bad they're enjoyable and they kind of just exist in their weird side area like the room in Birdemic. Um, right. So a couple of those that I think probably deserve the same level of cult following. Uh, Surviving Edged Weapons, which is a police training movie designed to teach cops how to protect themselves from getting stabbed by mm. knives. And what's fascinating about I think I've it seen clips comes, of this one yeah. yeah there's you know there's a lot of like really corny uh, dramatizations and stuff interspiced with like real footage of stab wounds and like cops talking about incidences where they got stabbed but what's kind of fascinating is what it kind of ends up accidentally doing is it shows you the paranoid mindset that cops are trained to think in right and, like you suddenly have this whole understanding of why so many of them are so trigger happy and like you know it's like they're taught to just think that anything is going to be an issue that can kill them and it's sort of fascinating just how completely ludicrous the movie gets with like all these types of knives that just sound like urban legends <laughs> you know like sewing razor blades on the back of a baseball cap and then the guy will grab the bill of the baseball cap and swing it so he can cut right, right. Like, crazy shit like that. Yeah, I remember that one. There's a whole TV show called Peaky Blinders about that. All right, guys, come on. <laughs> really? Is that yeah. what that's about? Yeah, it's about it's they about uh, Northern England gangs in like the 1900s. Doing crazy yeah, shit like that? Yeah, to hit up that That's show. what the, it was the peak of their cap had razors in it. That's where they were the Peaky Blinders because they'd blind you with the peak of their cap. Holy shit. <laughs> I did not know that that's what that title meant. Yeah, you so, thought it was British nonsense. <laughs> I, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I will, I will admit I thought it was some like, uh, you know, what was like the Cockney, like rhyming slang shit where like, uh, <laughs> like apples and pears mean some like random other thing. And, you know, you know what I'm talking peaky about. Peaky blinder is really like child minder or something. Well, yeah, it's like the a peaky blinder is somebody who wails on a jizz horn. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. I can't, I can't refute that. So what else you got? The other movie is Magic Lizard, which is that Magic sounds Lizard. great already. Sounds it's good. a mid-80s Thai movie, and it's a person in a rubber lizard costume running around <laughs> getting into hijinks. Um, getting into hijinks. <laughs> you can find it on YouTube, and there are no existing English subtitles for it, but you can follow the movie because uh, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Um, but basically, there's this lizard, and he's like guarding a temple or something, and Ultraman, like the director straight up stole Ultraman and oh, put him shit. in this movie. I love Ultraman. I'm on and, board. Yeah, it's rumored that he like apparently made a drunken bet with somebody who owned the rights to Ultraman and like won and just <laughs> used that as his argument as like, no, no, I, I won this in a bar bet. Like I can use Ultraman all I want. Or that's the winner anyway. <laughs> that sounds but great. Ultraman steals a crystal and the lizard goes to like a statue that comes to life. And it's like a it's like a god who like flies off to go take care of this. And then we spend the next 90 minutes just watching this lizard get up in the hijinks and it's really bizarre and goofy. Um, a friend of mine who's like really into bad movies, I introduced him to it and he showed it to a friend of his uh, who's from Thailand. And the guy informed us that a there's illegal footage of the royal family in there, which you can't have. Because you have to get the royal family's permission to put uh -oh. footage in your movie because otherwise it looks like an endorsement. And B, everything they're saying is gibberish. It doesn't even matter what they're saying. <laughs> There's like no actual like dialogue in the movie. Oh my God. But that, yeah, this sounds amazing. Magic I'm, Lizard. I'm looking at the poster right movie. now. The poster, I'm oh, definitely crazy. I mean, it, first of all, it's kind of beautiful. The poster. I, I'm definitely going to use that in the uh, thumbnail for this episode because it's just too gorgeous. 
Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, stolen music. There's uh, there's this really random like 20 minute subplot where we go into a cave with like a couple treasure hunters who are getting attacked by skeletons. Um, I'm down. Yeah. I'm on the magic it's, lizard train. And I don't want to ruin the ending because the ending is kind of so stupid. It kind of pisses you off. <laughs> anyway. I'm so I'm so into this. Yeah. I'm definitely watching this. Magic lizard. Oh, yeah. Jenny, you got any, any bad movies that you like? Well, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, all those Elvis movies, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that, you know, like there is something really watchable about them as long as you're in the right frame of mind and you have like either an, like a, at least an interest in Elvis in the sense that you either want to hear what songs he's going to sing or you just want to look at him. Right. <laughs> or you want to look at the the women even in the movie sometimes. Like it like they're so formulaic. They have nothing to do with Elvis as even a person. You know, like they're just so out out there, but they're kind of like they're really easy to digest. The music is amusing. Sometimes it's really good and most of the time it's pretty bad. Hey, I'm a clam bake enthusiast. Clam so bake I'm was kind of great. Like clam, clam bake's <laughs> fucking fun. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, you know, I find that a lot of those movies too, like sometimes I just want, I want the emotion of the film maybe more so than anything else. Or mm. I want like the visuals. So I can sit through a lot of like 60s, 70s nonsense movies because I enjoy looking at them. Or I enjoy like, you know, some, like maybe one scene will be like really spot on, you know, like I mentioned, I think uh, the other week I mentioned Slogan, which is that movie that Serge Gaines, like all the Serge Gainsbourg movies, quite frankly, but the yeah. movie that he met uh, Jane Birkin on. And there's this one scene where he's in his office and it's this like entirely lucite office. It's amazing. Yeah. You mentioned that the I'm last like, I just, episode. I'm I gotta like, see that now. Yeah. I just want that office. And like, that would be, that would have been enough, you know, like <laughs> there was more to that movie I liked, but that would have been enough for me to be like, this was a great movie. You know, like, um, there's another movie actually that, that Serge Gainsbourg's in that's called, that's Anna. It's Anna Karina. And it's just not a good movie. It's not good. But there's like a couple of scenes. There's this one good song of her. She sings on the beach, um, a Serge Gainsbourg song. And it's just shot well. And it's like, well, you know what? That's all I really wanted. Right. You know, like I wanted like a good five minutes. Yeah, I had to like kind of not sleep for the hour and a half that it played. But, you know, like that's sometimes it's like popcorn, you know, like that. that's my like, you know, easy to digest kind of stuff. The way that you talk about that, that's I think I do have like a an affinity for like nineties production values where like, I'll let a lot slide just because I, I enjoy the vibe of that yeah. on some like indescribable level. Like, I, I mean, I fucking like watched all of Airbud four, like a couple months ago. <laughs> and I was like really feeling it because I just enjoyed that, uh, you know, cookie cutter nineties production value. It's, it, it's amazing. The kind of stuff you'll get nostalgic for, like, you know, I, I saw a diary of a teenage girl recently, which I, I liked a great deal, but aesthetically there was some stuff that really bugged me. And especially like the color timing these days, I really don't like color timing in movies now. It's uh, I hate how the whites are always like yellowy, like pukey, like almost uriny. And uh, it just, it, it, it's just a weird tone to movies right now, especially of the indie variety, but like also like a, you know, Oscar films, etc. But I, I just don't like the color timing at all. And then you go back and watch like a nineties movie and it, you realize, holy shit, like everything was so bright and every, like there were actually like, there was a white light 
you know, lights were white back then. (laughs) And it's like, isn't that fun? And then you get nostalgic for these things that you just took for granted uh, back in the day. I kind of did the same thing. I, a couple months ago, I watched, uh, WrestleMania, that wrestling dog movie from the yeah. people who made it, but because it was like, this is perfect live tweet father, whether I like it or not, like this is going to be a good one to just kind of tweet about. Um, and then ended up really enjoying it. And I totally copped to the fact that it was because I was kind of like nostalgic because it was really very much in the mood of a lot of those disposable kids movies you'd rent from the blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Which but also had- like a dog wrestles a mummy in it. Like that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Like that's the thing that like people uh, like going back to like bad movies and giving them a fair shake, like people get so pent up about like ridiculous shit in movies. But like I'd much rather take a movie where a dog wrestles a mummy over like a serious one. Oh, absolutely. Think, like, <laughs> my favorite my favorite Godzilla, aside from the original one, is versus the smog monster because it's just so insane. Like there's nothing else like it. It's I'd much rather have that than any of those like more kind of stiff-lipped ones that kind of suck and are way too long what happens in that one it's pollution causes a monster made of like that can change between being like a goo and a cloud of poisonous smog that turns people into skeletons and godzilla fights it there's a bunch of like they got it's very similar to house how the people who made it hired a really crazy uh commercial director who just Ah. like threw everything he had at the wall for this one movie and then they never let him work in the studios again after (laughs) it but there's like some schoolhouse rock style animation in it. There's a club oh, where nice. everybody turns into having fish heads. Uh, there's oh, a I song see about this. how pollution is bad. That's just like this very serious song where this lady's like, little animals, please don't die. Um, <laughs> this sounds Godzilla like my kind of movie. Lies. Oh, I'm and then seeing at this the end of the movie. He kills the monster and looks around and sees that Japan is just too devastated by pollution to be saved. And he just has this really like Pyrrhic tragic march back into the sea with like this really overwhelming score of just like, I won the battle, but I lost the war. (laughs) It's insane. All right, guys, uh, you guys have any final thoughts for the uh, audience before we split? Obviously you got to follow Carl. You got to follow fried pundit Follow me for those Star Trek tweets. Oh yeah. And uh, any any final thoughts for the audience before we split? Uh, also, check out Gamera, another like oh, yeah. bunch of like good goofy kaiju movies. Hell yeah, Gamera's the shit. And uh, Jenna, you got any thoughts? Check out Knowing with Nicolas Cage. Oh man! <laughs> oh man! Oh, I, I, I think the first act of that movie is legitimately <laughs> great. Like the first it's not a bad half movie. hour or so is awesome. It yeah you you know you're it's right. Goofy. It's it, it also it's like a good premise too. Yeah. It's like a. In, in better hands, it probably could have been like kind of a serious film even. I th- I see why people like it too. I just think the tone of the whole last half just doesn't really work for me at all. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah, knowing is, uh, it, it, I kind of put it in like the, uh, the I'm legend territory where like at a certain point you just have to stop watching the movie and you'll think yeah. it was like a, <laughs> a fantastic film. Uh, it's not exactly in the same spot as knowing, but man, it's... It, I think Roger Ebert liked Knowing, didn't he? You know what, Knowing... Yeah, he loved it. Yeah, he... I, wow, four out of four. Oh, wow, yeah. really? I mean, a no. lot of... I, he's a big fan of Alex Proyas, right. too. Dark right, right. So. You know what I'd say about Knowing is that, like, it's it didn't blow my mind. I didn't really think it was that smart, but it had a, a good, like, you know, topic. <laughs> a good idea. And... Yeah, it's, 
it's shooting for that like 60 sci-fi quality and I don't think it lands but no yeah but at least it was satisfying you you don't leave that movie thinking like fuck this or like I wasted my time you're like "Eh, that was all right it was an attempt (laughs) I would would classify it as a as a film attempt yeah I wish interesting failure yeah yeah Yeah. exactly interesting failure all right well we got to have you back this was really fun yeah thank you for being on the show thank you all for listening and uh, of course call in leave us voicemails leave us jizz jazz whatever else 718-395-9711 and uh, somebody needs to serenade me now yeah somebody serenade Carl what what, what should Calypso for Carl (laughs) (laughs) that's what it should be I would have gone for classical but you know what Calypso I'll, I'll accept classical I'll accept classical for Carl uh, somebody will do it. Maybe uh, maybe Dan can bust out like a little a clarinet, classic, but like maybe like a classical guitar riff or something. All right, yeah, it'd be nice. All right, thank y'all for listening. See you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>